Good morning, Village Church East. It's good to see you this morning. My name is Craig Jarvis. I'm the lead pastor here at uh, Village Church East. And uh, it's it's very interesting. I woke up this morning, I thought, I wonder how many people are going to be there today, because it is really cold outside. And in case you, did you say this in here, or I can't remember, it is actually warmer at the North Pole today. So if you want to go there, you you can get a suntan there. If you want to stay here, you will risk your life if you go outside. So... Today I want to talk to you about a very serious subject. We're continuing our Explore God series. Last week we talked about, uh, is there a God? We've covered, does life have a purpose? Last week was, is there a God? Uh, We came up with the idea that you have to really try hard to ignore the evidences of God all around us. Uh, If that interests you at all, all these messages are online. You can click, uh, go to VCE uh, website, and you can click and download any of these messages. But today's topic is a very, very interesting one, one that touches every single one of us, because every one of us has this little pot of suffering in our lives. And in this pot goes all of the things that we struggle with, that we we hurt over, that we agonize over. Sometimes they involve other people, sometimes they involve stuff in our own lives, sometimes they involve just the news in general. When we turn on the news and think to ourselves, it can't possibly get any worse than this. And then you turn on the news, the next day you think to yourself, it just got worse. So we live in a world that is very used to this topic of suffering. And in your life, you are very used to this topic of suffering. Some in this room have suffered more than others. I mean, if you want to compare suffering and have suffering scales, uh, every one of us would, would, would rank on the scale somewhere. The question is this. If God is good... If God is good and if God is all-powerful, why does he allow suffering? Hard question, right? So who would like to come up and answer that question? (laughs) Shannon, yeah. Would you like to, Shannon? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Several years ago, I walked into a hospital. I was called frantically by a grandfather of a little four-year-old granddaughter. And he called me up and he said, Craig, you've got to get over here immediately. My granddaughter's dying. I said, what in the world is happening? He said, just come. So I jumped in my car and drove over and uh, walked into this, this arena of suffering. The little girl was at daycare. The daycare worker lost her temper, punched the little girl. The girl, little girl flew across the room against the wall and was broken inside, was internally bleeding. She was dying. I sat there, or stood there, around this crib. They have cribs in emerge crib with the parents. <clears throat> and I got the inevitable question from the parents. Why would God let such a thing happen? How would you answer? It reminds me what Jesus told his disciples to prepare them for how life was going to be for them after he left. In John 16 and verse 33, he said, I've said all these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus was no stranger to suffering, and he was no stranger to the fact that his disciples were going to suffer as well. I want to tell you, no one may have a really good answer as to why you're suffering, and I don't pretend to either. I'm not that smart. But I have a lot of things to tell you about what suffering is not and what suffering can do. 
mystics in the Middle Eastern religions will tell you a lot of times, they don't give suffering a second thought. The most they will tell you is that it's an illusion. Hindu mystics believe that suffering is just an illusion. Buddhists say that pain is not even real. It's just in your experience. It's just in your mind, and you have to elevate yourself above it. Here's, <clears throat> here's what I know. Christianity may not give an answer for why every person goes through what they go through, but it gives a better reason than those. It gives the best reason of all. Here's what evil is not. Number one, evil is not in your head. <laughs> it is not an illusion. It is not second without purpose. And it does not, third, it does not take God by surprise. God handles suffering every single day. But we're still left with the important questions. If God is good, why doesn't he eliminate pain and suffering? If God is powerful, he should be able to eliminate pain, pain and suffering. But there is evil in the world. So either God is not loving, or he is not powerful, or he does not exist. Or, God forbid, maybe he just doesn't care at all. If a good God allows suffering in this world, then he must not be good. That's how the argument goes. So before we go any further, let's just take a minute and define terms. Let's talk about what good is. <clears throat> Humanity doesn't want a good God. Humanity wants a kind God. There's a big difference between the two. Kindness does not care whether its object becomes good or bad. Kindness only desires the object escapes suffering. Let me say that one more time. Kindness doesn't care whether an object becomes good or bad. Kindness just desires that object escapes suffering. C.S. Lewis put it this way, we don't want so much a father, but a grandfather in heaven. You know the difference between fathers and grandfathers? <laughs> yeah, <coughs> kind of self-explanatory, right? We want a grandfather, not a father in heaven. And the difference between the two is that fathers are much more disciplinary on their children than grandfathers are. Kids are always declaring that moms and dads are unfair, they're unkind, they're, they cause them to suffer. They don't understand the reality of why their parent would make life, life difficult for them. They tell them what friends they can or cannot have. They tell them what activities they can and cannot do. They make them stop eating cookies and start eating vegetables. Parents are just making a world of suffering for their children, and they seem to enjoy it. <laughs> they tell kids to do their homework when they would far rather watch YouTube. So what does that make a parent? Does that make that parent unloving or unkind? <clears throat> Not at all. In fact, it is the unloving parent that does not create a world of suffering for their children. Let me say that one more time. It is the unloving parent that does not create a world of suffering for their children. So parents, if your kids think that you make them suffer a whole lot, keep it going on. You're doing good. Going down the right path. Why is this? Because a truly loving father would much rather see his loved ones suffer than be happy and disintegrate their lives in sin and evil. A loving parent will stop the train before it overtakes their kid. That's the difference. Kindness is eliminating suffering. Loving fathers, loving mothers, loving parents might make their child's lives difficult, but it's all done because they love them and they want to eliminate the bad things from their lives. Several years ago, Hannah had to go through surgery. She's our second oldest. At the time, she was our second child. We didn't have any others. 
We were at the hospital because she needed surgery. <coughs> when we took her in for surgery, she just a little, little bundle of little, little joy, right? Little Hannah in our little arms, and uh, big arms, little, little, little Hannah. But she had to have surgery. So we went into the hospital. Beth, you remember this very well, I'm sure. We go into the hospital, and little Hannah, she's old enough to understand what's going on. And as soon as they poked her with the needle, she just starts crying and screaming. And then the, the needle that they poked her with, you know, that she gets used to that a little bit. And then they start injecting her with the sleepy stuff. And then she starts to pass out. And Beth was holding her in her arms. And all of a sudden, little Hannah just passed out. Oh, my word. It just, that breaks your heart as a parent. And the whole time, they're poking her and prodding her and sticking stuff on her. She's looking at us as if to say, why are you letting these people do this to me? But we as parents had to let that happen because we knew surgery had to be done in order for her to get better. A loving parent doesn't necessarily always eliminate suffering because without the suffering, we may not have a chance. Well, Craig, that's fine, but what about the suffering in the world around us? Good question. Let's talk about that a little bit. First of all, pain is not always a bad thing. Like we talked about, when you experience pain, you know something is wrong, right? If you break your arm, you should feel pain. Why do you feel pain when you break your arm? Because if you live with a broken arm long enough, your arm will never function properly again. You need to get that arm fixed. Pain is not necessarily a bad thing because pain tells us something's wrong. The suffering that the world goes through may not necessarily always be a bad thing because suffering in the world should tell the world something's wrong. Something's not functioning like it should in the world. Something is awry. Something is askew in the world. It's not right. And when you see stuff on TV and you see people going through suffering and pain, the first thing you should ask and the first thing they should be asking is, why is this happening? This doesn't seem right. Pain tells us something's not right in the world. Second, pain is a bigger issue than you think. The level of evil is actually worse than we think. We pass by more evil than we know every day and we don't acknowledge it at all. I heard this statistic and I didn't believe it. But here it is. In the I-90 corridor, the place in which we dwell, we live, this is one of the highest corridors in North America for sex trafficking. You drive by houses every day that you don't even know sex trafficking is happening within that house. And you don't even know it, and I don't even know it. We don't even know how bad it is, and whatever you think that it's bad, it's worse than you think. We have no idea how much evil God is actually holding back. There will come a, a day, though, when the church will be removed from this world. If you know anything about eschatology, the end times, the church will be removed. The Holy Spirit will be removed from the world. And it only takes seven years, well, actually, three and a half years for the world to pretty much self-destruct. Because the power of God will be removed from the world. His hand withholding the evil that is present in this world. Read the book of Revelation. Hell will break loose on this planet because God's people will be gone. Today, we have no idea how much God is actually holding back. Now, those are the two easy ones. Here's where it gets harder. Number three, pain is a unique way to understand and receive God's love. In God's love, he gives us freedom of the will. Voluntas. This ability to voluntarily choose whether we will serve him or serve ourselves. 
It would be unloving to force anybody to love you. True or false? True. It would be unloving for God to force us to love Him. That's not what love is. If you have children, would you rather them love you voluntarily or would you rather push a button and make them love you? (laughs) Depends on what day I ask, right? Yeah. But overall, you want to be sure that your kids really love you from their heart. This is what makes this a difficult one to talk about because God has given us a voluntas, a freedom of the will to love him or to rebel against him. God created all things around us with the absolute necessity to obey. Fish swim, birds fly, everything happens. Science has laws because science can't break the laws God made for science. Everything functions exactly like it should function because God made it that way to function. The only thing in all of creation that was given a a different avenue of life is image of God, human beings. We are the only thing created who has the ability to say, I know what I'm created for, screw that, I'm going to do something else. Nothing else in all of creation has the ability to do that, only the human being. And that attitude came to us a long time ago, and it's hard... (laughs) It's a hard attitude to get rid of. We are the only thing given the ability not to obey God. And that is because God does not want to press a button on us and force us to love him. God created us with voluntas, freedom of the will, so that we can voluntarily worship him or unfortunately voluntarily rebel against him. That is because God is love, and the only thing made in the image of God is the human being. So therefore, we have the ability to voluntarily love or voluntarily rebel. The suffering present in this world is an outflow of that, voluntarily, that voluntary ability to rebel against God's love gone amok. Here's the way that the Bible puts it in Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, who's that one man, church? Adam, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. In in other words, every one of us are a rebel, just like Adam and Eve were rebels. And if you don't believe that, (coughs) I'd like to just go over your journal of what you've done over this past week, and see how much of a non-rebel you are. When humans choose to sin, they grabbed a thread of God's perfect creation and began to unravel things. And over time, the unraveling increased. And before long, God's creation was so filled with sin that he had to destroy it in order to save the planet. That was the flood. Please note that our sin, Adam and Eve's sin, didn't just affect Adam and Eve. And because they had kids and they had kids and they had kids and voila, thank you, Sherry. Voila, we're here. Sin doesn't just affect their prodigy all throughout history. Sin also affects the creation in which the humans were placed. The unraveling of God's creation affected human beings so that we die. We weren't meant to die. Did you know that? We only die because Adam sinned and his sin passed on to us. We find it very easy to sin because we have a sin nature. And that sin nature declares we die someday. The only person that ever existed without a sin nature was Jesus Christ. And that's why when he died on the cross, we ride his coattails to heaven. His death on the cross saves those who come to him for forgiveness. 
I can't die for you and make you righteous because I'm just as unrighteous as you. It wasn't just humans that were affected, though. Now all creation, when the thread began to be unraveled, all creation suffers under the effects and the rebellion of Adam and Eve. In fact, the Bible says all creation groans together in the weight of the sin we participate in. The Bible says it this way. Romans 8.20, For the creation was subjected to futility, insert, sin, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Someday we will be redeemed, and someday creation will be redeemed. We will live on a planet where sin, <coughs> excuse me, sin has been eradicated. And we will live in a place where we couldn't sin even if we wanted to, if we know Jesus Christ as our Savior. Let me say one other thing. Again, this is hard conversation. It should be said, though, the kind of pain we're talking about this morning has to make us realize that God is not the author of sin. We are. We humans have brought sin into this world that God created. And we continue to do so. And there is an unraveling still taking place every time we choose to live against God's plan for this creation and ourselves. There's an unraveling that continues to take place and every tsunami is a burp of the world of the sin that we brought in. When it wipes out thousands of people. But the pain that we, we suffer we too often bring ourselves. Sex trafficking is not a God thing, it's a human thing. Aborting a baby at 24 weeks without asking the baby's opinion is not a God thing, it's a human thing. Horror of war is not a God thing, it's a human thing. God doesn't sell drugs on the corner, humans do. We have a wonderful ability to continually destroy ourselves and the world around us. And in order for us to understand the question properly, why do I suffer? We have to understand we participate in what brought suffering here in the first place. Our sin caused the world to break. Number four. Pain can be a powerful vessel that can help us find hope. Believe it or not. (coughs) Pain allows us to look for hope somewhere else other than this fallen world. We have to look outside of this fallen world to understand that there is still hope. Suffering is inevitable in a world where we are capable of continually eating from the trees God tells us not to eat from. We do this regularly. God says, don't do this. We said, I'm going to do it anyway. Eat the apple from the tree God tells you not to. We do this because we have this freedom of choice inevitably leading to bad consequences because of bad decisions. What if God had an electric collar? What if if he strapped every single one of us with an electric collar? Would you you opt for this way way of living? If you had the option, would you opt for this electric collar and any time you're about to have a bad thought or rebel against God or live in a way that God would not want you to live, would you like for God to just zap that collar once and remind you of what's going on? Would you like that? 
Yeah, some of you are going, yeah. Listen, you never get out of your house in the morning. You'd be, you'd be going, I'm going to the, I'm going to the, get to the cart. You'd be, you'd be, every thought, every single action, you get zapped by God. I'd be getting zapped on a regular basis. Not many of us would be able to leave the house. In fact, think about the world in which we live. It would come to a screeching halt. When we rebel, we suffer consequences. But God allows us to live in the world in which He has made, and He allows us to rebel. And we continue to suffer those consequences. And the most obnoxious thing is for us to suffer the consequences of our own sin and take the sin that we suffer consequences from, lay it at God's feet and say, why are you an evil God? When in reality, it's our own decisions that has brought those consequences that we have to live with And we're blaming the God who told us not to live that way in the first place. Maybe you'd like an electric collar. I don't know if it would help. I can endure the electric collar. If I filled my snowblower with Coca-Cola and ran the snowblower, if I lived my life against the way that it was intended, I'll suffer consequences. My snowblower doesn't work anymore. You can't run a snowblower on Coca-Cola. Well, maybe you can. I should really try this before I keep using it as an illustration. Maybe you can, like, for a second. But inevitably, you'd break the snowblower. Human beings were not meant to function in a rebellious state. We are made in the image of God so that we would reflect His love to Him and to one another. Jesus said it very clearly. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. We are made in the image of God meant to demonstrate love on a regular basis. The problem is we love ourselves way too much to love other people and love God like we should. So we need an electric collar. (laughs) And the sad fact of the matter is I may even be causing damage to the very world in which I live. The unraveling began in our rebellion, and we participate in further unraveling by exercising our continual freedom to rebel against God and live against His will for how we are meant to live. So, where is the hope? Let's talk about that for a little bit because that's probably what we need more than anything else, right? <clears throat> Where's the hope in a suffering world? I want to introduce you to a man. His name is Job. Do you know the person, Job? you know him? You talk about a guy that suffered. This is like <clears throat> exhibit A for suffering in the Bible. Job was a righteous man. <laughs> that's what makes this whole thing ridiculous. I mean, because you'd think, if God's going to treat somebody like God treated Job, they got to have really done something bad. Job was a righteous man. You want to know the very first book, the very first verse in the book of Job? Oh, you already know it. It's right there. Look what it says. There was a man living in the name of Uz, whose name was Job. And that man was what, church? Blameless and upright. One who feared God and turned away from... How would you like for that verse to be written about you? Right? I don't think I would fit that. <coughs> I hope that I would, but I don't know if I'd fit that. First book, first verse. God says, let's talk about Job. He was an amazingly righteous guy. Turned away from evil. He probably, by the way, lived in the time of Abraham. And so there was a lot of evil in the world around him, a lot of idol worshiping going on around him. He rejected all that and served God. Not only that, 
You want to know what kind of guy this is? What kind of a dad this is? He was so concerned for his own family that he not only made sacrifices for himself and made sure that, and this is what they did in the Old Testament, don't have time to talk about this, but they did in the Old Testament, make sure their hearts were right with God. He made sacrifices for his children just in case they sinned. What a great dad. Look at it. Verse 5. When the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. He would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. These are all his children. For Job said, it, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Job not only made sure his heart was right with God, he went out of his way to make sure that his kids were okay with God. Good guy, right? <clears throat> Satan gets his eyes on this guy because he stands out in the world of Abraham. Abraham stood out, so did Job. So Satan goes to God, <coughs> and he says to God, you're bragging on Job, you like Job, and it's only because Job gets perks from you. Job's serving you for the perks, kind of like a prosperity theology kind of thing. You make Job's life easy, Job serves you. Yay, hurrah, hurrah, big, big sacrifice, right? So Satan looks at God and says, it's all in the book of Job, it's a wonderful narrative. You're, you're going to read it. If, if you've never read it, you should read it. So God, uh, Satan looks at Job and he says, you know what, I'll make Job suffer. And then you'll find out what kind of guy he is. Just wait and see what he does. Put him in pain, in the middle of pain, and the real Job will come out. And he won't look like this guy you think that he is. So God says to Satan, go ahead, <coughs> take away all that he has. Take away everything I've given to him. And let's see. Job 1.11. God said, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has. Or Satan says this to God, and he will curse you, God, to your face. So he did. God let Satan take everything away. He was very rich. He lost his land, which was a great, that's like having a big bank account in these days. He lost his land. It got stolen away from him. He lost all of his livestock. Raiders came in, took them all away. And there was a terrible storm. And his kids were all in the house. And the house fell on them, and they all died. Job lost everything. Satan took his freedom really to heart. And it didn't change Job's heart toward God. Satan is frustrated now. So he goes back to God. Again, you can read this in the book of Job. It's an amazing read. He goes back to God and he says, <clears throat> all right, all right. So you were right on this. But here's the deal. You take away his life. You take away his health. You take away his, his, his uh, medical condition. Then let him really suffer, really suffer. And he'll curse you to your face. So God said, okay, you can give him bodily pain, but don't take his life. Everyone expected Job to fail. Satan thought he would fall. Job's wife was waiting and encouraging him to fall. Job's friends thought he already fell and were blaming him because who in the world that's righteous would lose everything they had, all their children, everything that they own, 
and their health be kicked out of the city because they have this contagious disease, end up in a manure pile, a junk pile outside of the city, and left with pot sheards, broken pot sheards, scraping the boils that are growing on his body because he's in so much pain. Like God has to be mad at you for that to happen. So all of Job's friends got around him and said, Job, you really need to take stock. There's something wrong with your life. Otherwise, this wouldn't happen. The whole book of Job is Job arguing with his friends and saying, I've examined my life. I can't find anything that's wrong between me and God. Job defended himself and eventually began to think that he deserved. He did indeed deserve better from God. His argument was not that God is bad. His argument was that he was good. And he didn't deserve to suffer like this. Let me say that one more time because that's key to understanding the book of Job. Job's argument was not that God was bad. It was that Job was good. And he didn't deserve to suffer like this from God. There were a lot of other people who deserved to suffer in this world. Now, do you feel like that once in a while? (laughs) I mean, we go really easy on ourselves, right? I'm suffering. Why am I suffering when, you know, there's this other guy over here that's so bad, my neighbor, who's, that's all, he's, he's a bad person. He deserves to suffer, but I'm a fairly good person. That was Job's argument. So Job demanded to vindicate himself by God. God gave Job no reason why Job was suffering. God only, in the end of the book, last three chapters, reminded Job of who God was. Job 38, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, this is the end of the book, and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you. This is God speaking. I will question you and you make it known to me. Job said, I want a court date to prove that I don't deserve to suffer like this. So God granted him a court date. And God used the court date to speak against Job first. God said, if you don't mind, just let me speak first. And then God nails Job to the wall by telling Job who he was and who God was. He said, I'm the kind of God who controls weather. Lightning bolts come to me and say, where should we strike? I know the lifespan of every animal that no human being has ever seen, and I feed them, and I know where they go, I know where they eat, and no human being has ever set eyes on them, but I know their life intimately. I'm the God who creates the grass to grow and who feeds this world with food. I'm that God. And in the last three chapters, Job gets a very clear view of who God was. And in doing so, gets clarity on who Job was. This is what he says in Job 40, verse 3. He starts to realize, maybe it was wrong for me to ask God to have a court date with me. And he answered the Lord and said, verse 3 of chapter 40, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. In other words, we would say it this way. I'm putting my foot in my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. In other words, he says, God, I understand. You are God. I am just human. Forgive me for ever questioning your ways. And you know what God does? He gives it to him all over again. He nails him against the wall all over again by telling him, I am God, and you are human. What 
Why would God do this? Here's why I think God would do this. Few people in this life will ever get answers as to why they suffer. Job never got an answer. You'd think to yourself, God would say, okay, Job, Satan came to me at the beginning of the book. You're going to get a book named after you in the Bible. Just don't, don't be surprised when you get to heaven and figure this all out. But at the beginning of the book, I was bragging on you. You're a righteous guy. You and I, were good. I love you. You're right. You're righteous. You're good. Satan questioned you and thinks that he knew you better, but I knew you. I knew you could stand it. I knew you'd grow through it. I knew you'd be faithful through it, and I knew your, <coughs> your family would be better for it. I knew all these things, but you didn't. You'd think that God would explain that to him. He doesn't. All he does is say, listen, Job, you're human, and I'm God. I know a couple of things you don't. I don't know why. That's why we have the book of Job. We don't know why suffering happens in our lives, other than we might participate in it. We might be suffering consequences of bad decisions. All of those things are absolutely true. The unraveling of the world is taking place before us because our sin is consuming this good world that God has created. That is all true. But why does it hit some of us like it hits some of us? Why do those kids in that area of our world get sold into sex trade? and not get a chance. Most of the time, no one can tell you why it's your turn in the suffering line. Just know this. God grieves with you. God is still all-powerful. God has a purpose. Somewhere in suffering, God has a purpose. And God always has your best interests at heart. It is Satan's greatest move to pry our hearts away from God by introducing us to a world of suffering. I'll say that one more time. It's worthy of a tweet. If you're looking to redeem Twitter, here's one for you to put on there. It is Satan's greatest move to pry our hearts away from God by introducing us to a world of suffering. But God makes no mistakes. And sometimes you can trace God's hand a lot better in the dark than you can in the light. There are verses to remind us, literally thousands and thousands of scriptures to remind us that God walks with us through suffering. One of my favorite, one of the most popular, is one that all of us already know, and that is Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Actually, this is one of the reasons why Jesus said it was so important for him to go back to the Father, because if he had not gone back to the Father, we would not have received the Comforter. The Holy Spirit is given the title Comforter for a reason, a specific purpose. It's to remind us why he's here. He is here to help us through the times that we need God's comfort and God's encouragement and God's hope. John sixteen seven, Jesus said it himself, "'Nevertheless, I tell you the truth.'" It is to your, interestingly, advantage, Jesus says. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. I mean, how many of us would love to have Jesus with us on a regular basis, no matter where we were and where we were going? But the fact of the matter is, if you had Jesus with you, he wouldn't be hanging out with me. He wouldn't be hanging out in this church or that church. Jesus had to ascend back to the Father so that he could send us the Holy Spirit so that his presence, God the Spirit, 
God's presence could be with his people everywhere, throughout time, in every place at the same time. Comforting is not the only job of the Holy Spirit. Parakletos is the name that we get out of this verse, the helper. It actually means more than just comforter, but it is, interestingly, one of his main jobs. If you look this up in in, uh, uh, lexicon, you'll find that one who helps, this is the parakletos, one who helps by consoling, encouraging, or mediating on behalf of. Jesus knows we need this comfort now, in this world. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus himself said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. In times of suffering, the more you learn to lean into God, the more you learn how to trust God. And the more you accuse, the less of a loving God you will be able to see. One other thing that I noticed as I was studying through this that I missed, unfortunately, so many times before. I had a tendency to look at Job's wife and really ridicule her for her actions. But I looked at it as if this were a world of suffering that her husband was going through. And I started to realize that maybe she didn't mean curse God and die in a negative sense. Maybe she was so impacted by the suffering of her husband and there was nothing she could do about it that she just prayed to God, God, just take him so he'll stop suffering. She saw Job suffer over and over again, and she wasn't able to do anything, and that every one of us can relate to, because we've sat with people who suffer, and we want to take it away, and there's nothing we can do. All we can do is watch. And in desperation, I think she just looked at her husband, Job, and she said, curse God, and then maybe, maybe then, he'll finally end your suffering. But Job learned something more about God than his wife was able to find out about God because he was going through the suffering, she was not. She was going through it on her side, he was going through it on his side. And so he, he was able to explain it to his wife in a very profound way. And here's what he says in Job 2 and verse 9. His wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and not receive evil? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. What Job's wife missed, we so often miss too, because God is constantly at work in a suffering world, this suffering world. And it's not that God is a megalomaniac, allowing some to suffer and others not to suffer as much. Job's story teaches us that God always has a purpose in allowing suffering to enter into our lives. And also, he holds back evil from what it could potentially turn into in our lives. So my last question is this. What is our responsibility in a suffering world? Well, it's easy. Look at your bracelet on your wrist. It's to do what Jesus would do. And in this world, Jesus ran face first into the suffering of the people all around him. He entered into the pain that they were going through, and that is one of our greatest ways that we can exemplify Jesus Christ to those around us. We can enter into the pain of those around us and be a demonstration of Jesus himself. I mean, this was his whole mission. He left the throne room of heaven so that he could be born, so that he could live the, 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 the awfulness of being human of relying on a human parent and two human parents to keep him alive, to feed him, to change his diaper. And then he grew up 
And it didn't change. He was still ridiculed and rejected by men until finally the end. He was placed on a cross and left alone, even forsaken by his friends, betrayed with a kiss. He allowed himself to suffer under the very sin we inflicted in his world. Here's what it said 700 years before Jesus arrived. Isaiah writes it in Isaiah 53, and he says, this is the kind of Messiah that you're going to experience when Jesus shows up. Isaiah writes, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before her shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of his people. Jesus entered into the pain of others, and one other thing, he did so unafraid. Tax collectors, prostitutes, the rejects of society, those who have been cast out because people were scared of catching their diseases or, or catching their, in their flaws, Jesus runs into those lives riddled with diseases and rejection, and no one was beyond the grace of Jesus Christ. That's why we're called to enter into the pain of others. But it is uncomfortable. I mean, how many funerals have you been to that you go up to somebody and just, you don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. I'm praying for you. I hope that you get through this. They're in a better place. You never know the right thing to say. But just the fact that you're there and you're willing to walk into the pain of those around you is the very person of Christ you can be to those around you. That's why Jesus said we give a cup of water to those who are thirsty. And we give a morsel of food in his name. And when we do so, we do it as for him. We pray for those who persecute us. We forgive those who mistreat us. We live in a world of suffering. We suffer in this world, but we run into it just like Jesus Christ, head first, eyes open. This is the desired outcome for those of us living in a world packed to the brim with suffering. Our job is to pack it to the brim with the love of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis wrote this, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our consciences, but shouts to us in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I had a friend, he was about eight years old when he lost his dad. He and his sister and his mom now were alone. The day of the funeral, he tells me, the story's told it to me a couple of times actually, and after the funeral was over, everybody came back to the house for food and fellowship and just to spend time with his mom. After a while, the pastor arrived and my friend said to his mom, I, I can't stand it down here with all these people. I'm just going to go upstairs. And so she let him go upstairs. He shut the door and he was away from everybody where he wanted to be. The pastor arrived and the first thing that he asked is, where's this friend of mine? And his mom said, he's up in his room. So the pastor walked up the stairs, opened the door, saw my friend sitting on the bed, weeping. And in all of the wisdom that this man had, he slowly shut the door behind him, sat on the bed with my friend, and cried. He didn't say a thing. He didn't say any cliche that came to his mind. He didn't say any simple thing that my friend probably already knew. All he did was sit there and weep with my friend. And after a while, he got up, hugged him, walked out the door. And if I ask my friend what he remembers about that day, that is what he will tell you he remembers. Why? 
because somebody walked into his pain and felt it with him. Listen, I cannot give you detail-by-detail answers as to why God allows evil and suffering to go on. I don't know why God allowed you to draw the cards you've drawn. But the answer is not because God is sadistic, megalomaniac, trite, powerless, or indifferent. Pain can draw you in one direction or another. It can draw you closer to God for hope or away from Him in anger. Satan's objective is to use suffering and the suffering of this world around you to get you to abandon God. But God's objective is to use suffering to get you to experience a deeper trust in Him. And you can trust Him. Michael, uh, Pastor Michael at the other campus, would always say these words. I love this. If you knew what God knew, every time you would do what God did. The suffering we see in our world only teaches us to trust God even more. Here's some things I want to leave you with. A list of things, and you can take a picture of the slide if you'd like to, but I'm going to leave, lead them off for you and re- read them off. Number one, some things to leave you with. Suffering. And where is God in my suffering? Where is the love of God, and why would God allow this? Number one, God is a reason for all that he does. We may never know why in this world. No pain is ever wasted, ever. We may ask why, and we may get the answer, I don't know. But whatever reason God has, it will work out for good to those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. God has a reason for all that he does. Number two, God does not allow evil to overtake this world. That's what evil wants to do, but God holds it back constantly. Don't ever assume that God is doing nothing. We actually have no idea how much evil God is restraining. But there will come a day when that evil is let loose. The church will be removed. The Holy Spirit will be removed. And it will take only only about three and a half years for it to implode. God is constantly holding evil back. And we have no idea exactly how much he's already doing in the background. Number three, God entered into our world to experience for himself the suffering our sin brought here. That tells us something about his heart. He loves us too much to leave us alone. We are not orphans. We are not alone. Number four, he leaves us with hope and help. And that's the comforter, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was not given to us to release us from suffering. The Holy Spirit was given to us to walk with us through suffering. Number five, God rises to vindicate the oppressed. God will make all things right someday. You can trust him. And number six, there is always redemption and hope for those who trust in him. Job went through what Job went through, and he got that lecture from God at the end of the, of the book where God said, listen, you've got to understand who I am. And sometimes you may not always have the answer for suffering, In fact, you're going to be my example A, my exhibit A to the rest of the world that sometimes they don't get answers as to why they go through suffering. But Job became our example of our attitude that we can have through suffering. Job learned this deep reliance, this hope only when he went through suffering. And he said in Job 13 verse 15, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. 
Our final responsibility as Christians who hope in God in a suffering world is to remind them they can have hope too. Through suffering, we can help this world peer beyond the temporary and see into the eternal. We can remove the distractions, the superficial distractions of the world and help our world catch a glimpse, a momentary glimpse, maybe, but a glimpse into the eternal plans of God. We may never get an answer as to why suffering occurs, but we remind each other of the promise of redemption, which we can see more and more clearly as the suffering grows. This is why in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul, who went through an enormous amount of suffering, wrote these words, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, some of us are suffering, we think, oh, Paul, light momentary affliction. Read the life of Paul and you'll see what he meant by light momentary affliction. He says, our light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they come and go. But the things that are unseen, oh, those are eternal. I think this might be why Jesus talks about eternal destinies so much. Because he knows in this life we will have pain. In this life we will have tribulation. But those who struggle with pain in this life have a greater hope of the glory to come. That is why the Bible ends, the whole Bible ends with the book of Revelation, the last couple of chapters, tell us a little bit about this eternal hope of glory that we all can remind each other about constantly to keep our hope alive in a suffering world. Here's one of my favorite verses from Revelation 21, verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray.